So take your Bibles and turn with me to where we read, James chapter 3. James chapter 3. I want to thank Brother Bixby for mentioning in particular the incredible work that God is doing right now at Bob Jones Seminary, and in particular, I'd ask for you to pray for the work at the seminary. We launched a new strategic plan, and that plan really is very narrowly focused on serving the church, and even more narrowly, we determined that there's a great need right now in the church. There are more pastors in the United States of America over 70 than there are under 40. That would be a serious problem looking to the future if it weren't true that there are already a lot of vacant pulpits. Uh, In working on our strategic plan, I reached out to a guy that is involved in helping with pulpit supply, uh, and he is way up in uh, Wisconsin. And through the course of a few conversations, uh, we connected with some others, particularly just Wisconsin and Iowa and Illinois, those, just those three states, and in those three states, really a very narrow slice of, of Christianity, even of evangelicalism, and just in those conversations, in that narrow slice in just those three states, we were able to identify 104 churches currently without pastors, so you can imagine if you take that and spread it across our country, there's a huge need. I think conditions like not just COVID and the stress that that brought to pastors, but I think then maybe some of the resulting impact in our culture um, has actually discouraged many. There were many that said things like, boy, as soon as we get back to normal, I'm done. Maybe we should praise the Lord that I'm not sure things are going to go back to whatever normal was because maybe they won't be done. Um, But in the process of that, over the course of time, many churches have shrunk And because of that, in the midst of that need, you have churches that don't have a pastor that have shrunk, and they're looking for a pastor, only they found themselves now in a financial position where they actually can't pay a pastor full-time, and now they're looking for somebody bivocational. I say all that to say there's a great need. The strategic plan at the seminary is simply this, 500 by 5 by 5. We are asking the Lord to help us train up 500 pastors every five years So in the next five years, 500 pastors, and then 500 every five years after that. That's our goal. We believe that in doing that and making it a focus that the Lord will bless the rest of our seminary programs and our counseling programs and all of those things that are designed to help support the ongoing work of the church will also grow. But we're focusing right now on, I think, what is the greatest need, and that is seeing pastors in the pulpit. We found that there are two things that we've identified as issues with regard to that journey. Pastors need to be trained today. And the training, as you can imagine, because of what we are facing, uh, needs to actually be fairly stringent. And so we believe a seminary education is necessary to be prepared to pastor today so that we don't see pastors go out and do what has become the normal, serve three years and quit. Those with a little more spizzerinkum to them, serve three years at one church, move to another for three years, move to another for three years, and after about nine or ten, then they quit. That isn't really all that helpful. And so we believe that they need an education that will help them have a toolbox that enables them to be able to get in the Word, help people, serve the church. The problem with that is seminary education isn't cheap. And so the first issue is that of affordability. And I would ask you to pray with us. One of the things that we have not done very well over the years is provide scholarships for seminary education. And so it is my job and my passion to raise a million dollars a year for seminary scholarships. That's what I'm doing. I praise the Lord. We started in May. And as of now, for our first year, we're somewhere just north of $600,000. And so you pray with us to that end. Um, One of the things that we would like to do is find young men uh, with pastors who are willing to sponsor and support and encourage and walk the journey of training with them, that when those young men do an internship, they go back and serve in their own church. Someone that, that like that um, qualifies for what we call a four plus two program. And that is that they can come and through our working through our programs, they can do four years plus two years, finish an undergrad degree in Bible and a master of divinity degree in six years. We're looking for 20 of those a year and I'm putting in place the funding that those that come and do that will do that completely tuition free all six years. And so pray with us to that end. We're looking for a cohort of 20 a year that will work through that together, 20 a year. The other issue is accessibility. 
And by God's grace, we at the seminary have been able to take all of our classrooms now and convert them into smart classrooms so that everything we offer, every course in every program from a Master of Arts all the way through a PhD is available live stream. You can take every class from wherever you are in the world and not have to uproot, leave your church, come, whether that be for 10 days or whether that be to say, I'm leaving and I'm going away and I'm getting an education and then I'll move on. We really want to serve the church. And so pray for us in that regard. That has nothing to do with James. I want to read the first few verses of the passage that Brother Bixby read for us. So look at James chapter 3 and verse 1. It says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. In light of the problem that I just described, that doesn't sound like an encouraging verse, does it? Churches are looking for pastors. There's a lot of churches that don't have pastors. We come to James and he said, now in case you're thinking about being a pastor, really give that a long, hard thought because if you take it on, there's stricter judgment. Notice verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member. Yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. By way of background, I think we have to understand where James is at as he comes to this section on the tongue. The book of James isn't necessarily a doctrinal treatise. I've mentioned before, as I've preached on this book, that it actually would be more in the wisdom literature genre, much like, you know, the wisdom books of the Old Testament. Part of that is just the nature of the pithy statements in the book, but actually... Uh, in studying, there's, there's more to it than that. James, either directly or by allusion, quotes the Old Testament wisdom books 26 times in a very short book. So actually, the wisdom of the wisdom books, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, is actually all through this book. Why do I say that? Because it brings to the book a very moral tone. Wisdom literature is directed very much at skill for living. If you will, it talks about knowledge and then getting understanding and from getting understanding that we live with discretion and ultimately that discretion in the choices that we make looks like wisdom and wisdom is defined as skill for living. It's actually taking the truth of God, processing through a grid, applying it to life and living a certain way that looks like wisdom, skill for living. And thus wisdom literature tends to feel very moral. Here's what the choices you make should look like in light of what you say you believe. And that's very much the nature of the book of James. He's not an argument with Paul. In fact, you'll find that the thread that runs through James actually is a thread that runs through both the Old Testament and the New Testament. James in a sense, writes his epistle to challenge his readers to examine their faith to see if it is genuinely saving faith. And I don't think he is doing that to them to say over and over and over and over again, question your faith. I don't think he's doing that to say, see, I don't think you really are saved. That's not what he's doing. I think he is actually calling them to, in a very concerted way, think about the fact that as a believer who professes faith in Christ, your behavior matters. And we're living in a culture more and more and more that is telling us exactly the opposite. You see, I don't think that there's any greater tragedy in all the world than the tragedy of counterfeit faith. Think about that for a moment. The tragedy of counterfeit faith. And we know Jesus spoke about it, didn't he? He said, there'll be many in that day that say unto me, Lord, Lord, and this is what my life looked like. And he says, yeah, but I never knew you. There wasn't an actual saving, redemptive transaction 
that actually affected who you are and thus affects how you live. The Old Testament is filled with injunctions with regard to this idea of examining your faith. David cried, search me, O God, and know my heart and try me and know my thoughts. Ezekiel said this, but he considers and turns away from all his transgressions that he has committed. He, sh- he that does that, he shall surely live. He shall not die. Haggai said in Haggai 1.5, consider your ways. The New Testament then picks up that theme. John the Baptist said that we are to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Paul, in relating his encounter with King Agrippa there, the the Bible in Acts 26.20, Paul says to him that we are to do works, meet for repentance. He writes to the church at Galatia in Galatians 6.4, but let every man prove his own work. And to the Corinthians, he said, examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith, prove your own self. And what I want to, I guess, strike us with is this. The Bible makes it clear that real faith can be seen and thus should be seen. Real faith can be seen and thus should be seen. In a sense, it is visible in the life of the one who possesses it. But further, it is visible in the life that is possessed by it. And I think that's more the grasp of faith. That when I get saved, genuine saving faith possesses me and thus transforms me so that you can see my faith. That is the plea of James. If you will, he says, show me your faith. Show me your faith. If you will, to look at the whole of the book, James says that we are in light of this faith to stand with confidence, to serve with passion, to speak with care, to submit with contrition, and to share with concern. And if you didn't notice it, I really do like to alliterate. We're to stand with confidence. That's what genuine saving faith looks like. We are to serve with compassion. We're to speak with care. We're to submit with contrition. And we're to share with concern. In the midst of calling us to that kind of a life that displays genuine saving faith, in the middle of it, in chapter 2, two times, James refers to the colossal reality that there is such a thing as dead faith. A professed belief that doesn't actually transform the life. And thus it hangs in the air as we come to this third chapter. And so I want us then just to simply look at a passage of Scripture that I think is very familiar to all of us. And I want us to look at just a couple of key truths. And the first thing I want us to look at is the problem of the tongue the problem of the tongue. As we come to this passage, very often we disconnect verse 1 from the rest of the passage because it kind of seems awkwardly disconnected. What's that whole thing about don't be teachers? I'm not sure about all of that, but let me get to the, the meat of this. He says some really great stuff about my tongue. And maybe if you're a parent, you're thinking through, oh, there's some stuff there as I'm talking to my kids, particularly when they talk to each other. And I think maybe some of that thought is because we disconnect from what is going on. One of the questions that I would pose to us as we look at this material is this. Think about this question. What is the problem that James has in mind? So when he says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, what is the problem that he's thinking about? I believe that part of that is found in his audience. James is writing to an audience that has somewhat been dispersed. And as they've been now dispersed, in a sense, he has been their pastor in Jerusalem and now they're dispersed. So he's writing to all of them and realizes that they're broken down into smaller congregations that are in need of teachers. And it seems like the backdrop is that in those congregations, there are people that for wrong reasons see an opening to become a leader or a teacher who would be respected and followed. And he is giving them a warning. 
Be really careful about taking on this role of teacher. The word that he uses here, actually, without getting into it, is directly used throughout the New Testament with regard to those who would take the primary teaching office in the church. And I think that's what he is addressing, is be careful about taking on that primary teaching role in the church, because in that role, there is greater accountability. You see, one of the problems is that you become responsible for the lives of those that you have taught. Aren't you thankful that the history of our church is marked with people who very carefully approach the primary teaching office in this church? God has richly blessed Palmetto Baptist Church over 11 years. It's the primary reason we chose to come here. And I am thrilled that through that transition that God has brought someone clearly that we have seen on display since he has come whose primary passion is to teach you and me not just about the word of God, but the word of God and how we should live it. And so we see that there's this issue of the primacy of teaching. As we think about that for a minute, I I want to call your attention to the nature of this passage. And then I want us to think about the problem that James is going to address here and how it might apply to us. I'm no poet. I'm not even the son of a poet. But sometimes it helps me in remembering truths. And so this is a little poem I wrote. You can forgive me. I don't often get opportunities to quote my poetry, so I'm going to take them when I get them. The tongue tells a tale of adventures wild and bold. It tells of things from far and wide and those both new and old. The tongue, it has a power to tell both lie and true. But while it speaks of other things, it reveals the story of you. The title of my message today is The Tale of the Tongue, and often when we look at a passage like this, we focus primarily on the things that we say, and I think that's important. But I want you to think about the setting for a minute that you are in, and you are talking, and you are saying things, no matter what that environment may be, and you walk away from that conversation, and while people process for a moment the things that you say, they then hit a hard stop, and their mind transitions to this. What he just said says something about him. What does it say? After your conversation, someone walks away. What is it that they are thinking about you because of what your tongue told them about you? Do you walk away? They process the words. They hit a hard stop and they think that's an angry man. That's a dishonest man. That's a prideful man. That's a loving man. That's a caring man. Think about the words you say in light of this. What is your tongue saying about you? That's what James is after here. You see, he's going to talk throughout this book about all kinds of things and the way they evidence or should evidence our faith. And here he's talking about our tongue. The problem with that is it makes us really uncomfortable. Why? Because James is going to be really clear. Every one of us has a problem with our tongue. So what do we do with that tension? You see, I think the reason he is here enjoining them with caution about this role of teaching is because the problem that he is addressing is pride. I think they're striving for this office because they see it as prestigious. I think there is in their heart this inclination towards wanting to be heard. Ever feel that? So I want to step away from that primary application in this text and I want to bring it to where we live. You think we struggle with our tongues because at times we just want to be heard or I have a right to be heard? Don't I have a right to my opinion? It's not anything new. It wasn't new in Bible times. It wasn't new with C.S. Lewis. 
He wrote screw tape letters, and one of the things he does in that interaction between a senior demon and his nephew who's trying to keep a man from getting saved, and then once he gets saved, keep him from living for Christ, is he says, we've got this secret weapon, a weapon that you can use to keep someone from living in this world for Jesus Christ. And Lewis describes it as this, jargon. Fill his life with jargon. Get him off track. Get him talking about all kinds of stuff that's going on and give it great importance so that he doesn't talk about what really matters. I would say in our day, the word has changed from jargon to rhetoric. It's my privilege to travel quite a bit right now. And when I travel, not just to see the world, I get to see churches representing the university and the seminary. And it's a true joy to be in pulpits of churches, of people of like faith all over the country. And, and uh, Brother Ken mentioned that one of the wonderful blessings my wife and I have had for the last almost two years now is that we've been a part of helping guide Bob Jones University through the tempestuous waters of COVID. Whenever we watch the news and we hear things like uh, new variant, we like almost hide our eyes. It's like, are you kidding me? You know what's so interesting to me, though, is I travel in churches and I end up spending a lot of time answering email. I spend a lot of time on the phone. And I can't give you percentages, but I can tell you the percentages of people who call and ask me about the spiritual health of Bob Jones University compared to those who call to either complain about our COVID protocols or the absence of our COVID protocols is minuscule. See, we're living in interesting days. We have come through a time where we've experienced hyper-isolation. Most of us in America have no idea what it's like to have to spend that much time by ourselves. What do you mean I can't go to work? What do you mean Walmart isn't open? What do you mean like... And now it's, we, they're, they're there, but they can't get workers. We've, we're going through... We have gone through a time of hyper-isolation like we've never experienced. The interesting thing about that is we layer that hyper-isolation with a time of hyper-information. Imagine a time when we would be isolated and all you had was the radio or the television. Imagine that. Imagine just having the television. No, most of us don't even look at our television. We spend all the time on the television with our phone in our hand. So it's not just enough to watch the television. We've got to be actually scrolling for memes and social media and, and all kinds of stuff. And we're going through a time not of just hyper-isolation where we're by ourselves. We actually are being inundated with hyper-information. And now the world is starting to come back together. And you know what we are finding? That we are now a culture that is experiencing hyperpolarization. Why? Because all of us, through our time alone, with lots of information, now have formed this well-informed and strongly held opinion that we're dying to share. And so we come back together And it's no mystery that what is selling most in our culture is debate. I'm not here to say which side you're on or which issue you have or whatever. But I'm calling you to the fact that today, James may be saying to you, think about the conversations you have had over the last 18 months and ask yourself whether or not they actually evidence your faith. I'm finding more and more and more that not out there, but in the lobbies of churches, there's way more conversation about COVID than Christ. Why does God bring events like he's brought to our country and to our globe in the last 18 months? Have you asked yourself that question? Why would God do this This didn't happen to God, by the way. Satan didn't pull a fast one. God said, man, I had such great plans for 2020. Look, they all got messed up. He is sovereign and he's on the throne and he has purposes. The trial of faith works perseverance in his people. Trials bring the need for hope and hope is only found one place. I believe we have a great gospel opportunity. I ask you, does your conversation in the last 18 months look anything like seizing that opportunity? Kevin Bowder recently wrote a little piece 
If you don't know it, he has a little newsletter that he does almost weekly called In the Nick of Time. And it's advice that we need just in time. And he recently had a piece where he was asked about a well-known church in his area and the problems it was experiencing, as Kevin does. I think in allusion to Harry Potter, he spoke of the church that shall not be named. The inner workings of the church that shall not be named, he said, are none of my business. For me to intrude into them would be to violate the sovereign autonomy of that congregation as a church of Jesus Christ. I have no right to be informed. Because I have no right to be informed, I have no right to an opinion. Whoa, wait a minute. I'm an American. Somewhere, I am sure, in our founding documents, it says that I am endowed by my Creator with the right to an opinion. Kevin writes this whole piece on whether or not we have a right to an opinion. And he actually says, here's three criteria for whether or not you have a right to an opinion. First, one must be addressing a matter that is subject to opinion. A genuine opinion involves a matter of value, not of fact. The sum of one plus one is not subject to opinion, no matter what your two-year-old thinks. The speed of light is not subject to opinion. The specific gravity of nitric acid is not a matter of opinion. These are matters of fact. Some matters of fact may be unknown, but it's still not subject to an opinion. It is subject to guesses. And if these guesses are sufficiently informed, they may qualify as hypotheses, but they are still guesses and not opinions. What is he saying? Be honest enough to say, I have a guess, not an opinion. Secondly, to have a right to an opinion, one must be correctly informed. An opinion is an informed reasoned position on a matter of value. People who express themselves on matters of which they are ignorant do not have opinions. They have prejudices. See, I think in light of that, because you and I are so dependent on what the media tells us and without any actual scientific knowledge, if we're honest, we actually don't even have an opinion on COVID. We have prejudices. And I think our conversations could look very different if we were honest enough to start there. Third, to have a right to an opinion, one must be in addressing an issue in which one has a legitimate interest. In other words, we have no right to an opinion about matters that are none of our business. So I ask you this question. Have you put yourself in your heart on subjects that are affecting our current culture pridefully in the place of being a teacher? Oh yeah, well I've got something to tell you. Yeah, I hear what you're saying, but you know what? I know this fact, and I read that journal, and I've listened to Fox News more hours than you've listened to Fox News. I can tell listening to you, you're a CNN guy. Oh, yeah, you're an MSNBC person. Oh, you're off the rails. I even know what radio station you listen to. You're an NPR dude, aren't you? Like, like, this is how our culture is living, folks. And it's so easy for us to just fall in line. Don't we have something so much more important to talk about? It's easy for us to fall into this trap and think we're going to make the world a better place if we could actually get them to know what we know about COVID. And I ask you this question, if you actually convince them, would you actually make the world a better place? It's jargon. It's not going to change anything or anyone. Only the gospel can do that. The fact that maybe we prove that you can or cannot trust Dr. Fauci is not going to give anybody any more hope. Only Jesus can do that. So what's your tongue saying about you? What story is it telling? So the primacy of teaching, but then you see secondly, the pervasiveness of verbal errors. I'm here to help us all understand that this is a problem for all of us. Be easy to back away from that, <laughs> but the text of Scripture doesn't do that. 
You say, so what are you saying? That all of us should walk around and question our faith? Absolutely not. But what I am saying is, and what James is saying is that your tongue is actually preaching an everyday message to you. Whenever you look at your tongue, and he's very clear, you can't control it. It affects everybody. And thus, he moves to the, from the problem of the tongue to the power of the tongue. And he talks about, really, with three simple illustrations, the power of the tongue. And, and, and I want us to not make more of this than it is. There are great commentators who have wrote whole commentaries on these three little illustrations. Bits in horses' mouths, rudders in ships, and then this little ember that sets the world on fire. And I'm sure there are wonderful things in there, but James doesn't say any of them. And he is driving through this layered illustration, three illustrations, one simple truth, and that is this. Your tongue may be small, but it has the power to actually change, set, and destroy the entire course of your life. Don't mitigate the impact of your tongue because it's small. We don't say, well, horses' bits aren't any good. No, we use them to control horses. We don't say, well, a little rudder, look at the size of this ship, that's no good. No, we use it to control them. And we don't say, wow, just a little ember, I think I can throw it in that forest and it won't make any difference. No, it has the power to set the whole forest on fire. And he is saying, don't run away from the reality that your tongue is powerful because it's small. He's actually calling us to a clear confrontation. Your tongue is filled with power, and that power is negative without the working of the gospel. What he is saying is realize that everyone does fail with his tongue, so everyone needs Jesus. And of course, that is initial There is no hope for controlling the tongue as it expresses the heart without true regeneration. But then that regeneration is the beginning, as Paul describes it, of the work of God in us. We now have the indwelling Holy Spirit who is changing us from glory to glory. And all so often, we forget that we're in the process of change. And you know what constantly reminds you that you need to change if you'll listen? your tongue. And so you walk out of that heated debate about something that doesn't even matter and you may have won and you may not have won and you walk away and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit knocks on the door of your conscience and says, did that sound like Jesus? And your tongue is saying to you, you need Jesus today. And you know what the evidence of genuine faith is? that you repent. Say, oh God, help me. You lose your temper, you go off the rails with your children, and you walk away, and you think, man, I shouldn't have done that. And your heart immediately says, yeah, but they did this, and they did that, and they did this, and they've done it a thousand times, and everything else, and you're tempted to just go about your life and leave it alone. And there's this voice that says to you, yes, they did, but what about your heart? Your tongue is telling you something. It's saying, dad, you need Jesus. Repent. You get caught up at the water cooler in the conversation about your employer, how unkind they are, how disrespectful they are of you and your time. And you're there with maybe a water cooler that's surrounded by unbelievers and you join in. In fact, you've gotten really good at conversation because maybe you are good. You teach a Sunday school or something and you're used to talking to people. And so you are the one that is so able to use elocution and say it so well. And everybody almost wants to clap at the way you have just completely undressed your employer. And you walk away and just for a moment, your heart is smitten with the fact that that's probably not what you have said. Your tongue is telling you something. You need Jesus. So often I think we 
say things like tongues just it's just a little thing it it really doesn't matter all that much in the grand scope of things what does my tongue really matter is what i say really all that important it really doesn't affect me all that much and we pull all of that together and we speak what we want to speak and whenever we're confronted with what our tongue might be saying about us we come up with something ingenious like well i didn't really mean it Let me ask you a question. When you have been on the receiving end of some form of verbal attack and you finally came to the place to go about relational restoration and you talked to the person about the problem and they looked you in the face and said, you know what, I really didn't mean it. How many of you walked away thinking, oh, I'm so glad he didn't mean it. I feel so much better. Has anybody ever felt really encouraged by, well, I really didn't mean it? You see, the fact of the matter is your tongue is telling you that whether or not you want to acknowledge it, you did mean it. Maybe you didn't mean it in the way you meant it. Maybe you didn't mean it in the moment with the strength you meant it. And maybe you don't mean it all the time. But the Bible is really clear that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And really what it is saying is what pours forth from your mouth is an overflow of what's in your heart. And you say, well, you know what? That's really not what I think. Let me ask you a question. What do you do with the fact that the scripture says that your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked? And maybe the only way you can actually know your heart is through the story that your tongue is telling. And rather than listening, you are saying, I didn't mean it. When maybe what you should be saying is, maybe that is what's in my heart and my tongue is telling me I need Jesus today. And so, the power of the tongue, and then we see the perversity of the tongue. James is going to take us on a very negative journey because I think he wants to grab their attention because the tongue has such power and potential to corrupt and destroy. And I want you to see that he points out really three things about our tongue that we need to be aware of. The first he says is that our tongue is a very world of iniquity and I want us to see the thought that we don't often think about, and that is the power of our tongue to lead to internal decay. He uses an interesting phrase here when he talks about a world of iniquity. It's not the earth or the universe or the created order, but it actually is similar to the way that John uses it when describing the world, love not the world. It's cosmos, and it's a system, a scheme, or an arrangement. And in this case, it is the source of unrighteous, ungodly behavior within sinful man. And what he is challenging us to think about is if we're given constant reminders by our tongue of something that might be going on inside us, that our tongue has the potential to lead us down a road of internal decay. That could be as simple as this. The power of the second decision. I think I could easily stand before us all this morning and say that this little thing has lied for every one of us. And maybe we could move an excuse and say, well, everybody lies and, you know, I I shouldn't have done it, but just a little white lie or whatever. So let's just leave that first lie alone and let's go then to the second decision. Whenever you face the reality that you haven't told the truth and now you have a decision to make about what to do with the fact that you haven't told the truth, there is no escaping the fact that your will is now engaged. And will you tell the second lie? Or will you fix the first lie? And so many of us choose the willful decision to tell the second lie. And you have started the journey of the tongue leading to your whole world being corrupted. Internal decay. Why? Because you have now made the decision that I'm going to begin to affect my conscience. 
a willful decision against what I know is right is the first step in adjusting my conscience. Internal decay. We get that with lying. Think about the rest of our verbal errors. You have that first argument and you know you were wrong. And maybe there's a pang of conscience that says, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have gotten so angry. I shouldn't have uttered those words. I shouldn't have said it that way. And you have maybe for a moment in your heart to say, I'm going to make that right. But you don't. And the very next thing that happens in the very next conversation is they display the very behaviors that made you so angry and you now go further in your sinful response than you did the first time. Friend, hear me. You have started the journey of internal decay. This is what James is warning us about. This is why it's so important that we listen to our tongue whenever it shows us that we need Jesus. But then, see, incessant destruction, incessant destruction, the corrupting influence of the tongue reaches out in, in a sense in widening circles for it sets the whole course of life on fire. Stop for a moment. And step away from your subjective view of life and relationships. And for a moment, take an objective look. Look at the lives of those who are closest to you and honestly ask yourself how your tongue has shaped them. Are they empty shells emotionally that have learned how to actually walk around you so as not to get bruised again? Look honestly at much conversation with unbelievers and ask, how has your conversation shaped them? Do you honestly think that 18 months of systematically teaching them to distrust government is going to make them trust Jesus? Take the objective look and ask yourself, does it look like incessant destruction? Because interestingly, I think James ratchets it up when he goes to the third implication where he talks about this spring that shouldn't bring forth salty water and good water. And he points out this idea of an inconsistent display. And the fact that he does this to me is so important because what we're tempted to do is to run to the evidence. Oh, but I do say this, and I do say that, and I do say this, and I do do that, as though somehow it's a counterbalance to everything else that we do, and that somehow it makes these things okay. And he is saying, no, 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 no. You might say a lot of really great things. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is all of this, and that it needs to change because it isn't okay that it's balanced by a little Jesus over here. And he drives us back to the fact that what needs to happen as we see what we do with our tongue is that we need to say, God, I need you to change me a little more. God, I am not there yet. This little member is the strongest daily reminder that I need Jesus every day. In fact, I need him in every conversation. And it's only there that we will live a life where our behavior more and more and more reflects our belief. You say, okay, well, can that be done? I want to leave you with one more thought, and that is power over the tongue. There are many places that talk about this. I want to point us to just one. Take your Bibles and turn with me quickly to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. 
Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, Paul, writing to the church at Colossae, says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. There are other verses, but then jump down to verse 8. He writes, but now you must put them all away. And notice what he says. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And he jumps right to our tongue. He doesn't leave it out. In fact, if you will, by extension, he is saying even this stuff needs to be put to death and be put away. I'm encouraged by the fact that if he says it should be, that it can be. In fact, then he addresses that. Look down at verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That's a very important word. To which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. With thankfulness in your hearts to God. Don't stop there. And whatever you do. Notice the next little phrase. In word. Or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Friends, there is by the power of Christ the opportunity for us to systematically see the transforming work of the grace of God in our lives that is reflected in our tongues. You don't have to speak like a lost man. Jesus has the power in ruling on the throne of your heart to bring your unruly tongue under his authority. You can't, but he can. Therefore, he calls us to dependence. So just for a moment, stop and think about what maybe that might look like. God, I know my heart, and I'm being honest. I'm about to go speak with my children, and I want to be honest about my heart. I know my heart. And right now, I'm heading into a conversation where my pride is telling me I'm not being respected the way I should be. And I want to go to my child And I want to make the case for why he should be respected, me. And God, I've got these great gifts to come out with these great phrases. I even have the ability to borrow some, like I brought you into this world and I can take you out. To look at my child and ask them a profoundly wise question. Do you know who I am? Like, what do you mean? Of course I know who you are. So God, before I go have this conversation, before I ask you to control my my tongue, I'm gonna ask you to change my heart. Because my child does not need a reminder of who I am. They need a reminder of who Jesus is. Colossians 3 tells me that Jesus can do that. God, I'm heading back into a workplace where it's polarized, man. I know it, it's polarized. There are people of every kind of political view and I have a right to an opinion. And God, you know what my heart is telling me right now? That I have a right to be heard like every one of them has a right to be heard. And so Jesus, I'm asking for your help. Because it doesn't matter whether or not they respect my opinion. It matters that they come to know you. So help me to be salt and light. And that part of that looks like the fact that my speech should always be filled with grace, seasoned with salt. We are living in not just a polarized world. We're living in a hopeless world. What do you think happens in the fear-filled hearts of so many people who hear the word variant? Do we think about it? 
Did, when you heard that, when you heard about Omicron, did your heart immediately think, oh my word, here they go. They're going to keep this conspiracy going even further. Maybe you got really crazy. I know exactly where this is going. This is going to 2022. And you know what? That might all be true. But have you stopped for a moment and thought about the people that actually are terrified? People who got a little bit of hope that maybe they would get to go back to work and maybe they would find a pathway to pay off the credit cards they've run up through the roof and now it looks like they won't. They don't need to know whether or not you believe this next variant is actually going to spread like Delta. They need to know that Jesus cares. They need to know the gospel is real. They need to know that no matter what happens in this life, this life is not all there is. And they need to be prepared for eternity. So I ask you this very simple question. What's the tale of your tongue? What is your tongue saying about you? Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, how we need you. This is is hard. This is as hard as it gets. That's why James writes this. But it's not a heavy hopelessness. It actually is hope-filled if we will just stop and realize that we actually do have the opportunity through Christ to live a life, even through our speech, that evidences genuine, transforming belief. But it takes work. Everyday work. It takes a persistent humility. It takes a surrender to Christ. It takes saying, I cannot rule on the throne of my heart and have control over my tongue. I need Jesus to rule there. And I usurp that throne all the time. And it becomes evident that I have when I speak. And so Jesus, please, please take back the throne of my heart. God, I pray that you might transform our speech because you're continually transforming our hearts and I pray that through it you might allow the spoken word to transform the hearts of those we know and love because they come to know Christ as we have known him. Allow our belief to genuinely transform our behavior, our speech, that whether we eat or drink or whatsoever we do, we would do all to the glory of God, whether that be in word or in deed. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.